is kind of an important week, uh, weekend in the life of our denomination. It's LDR weekend when, uh, you know, some of our best and brightest gather in St. Louis to talk about how we're actually going to move forward with the mission of God. And part of that is, is our own, uh, preacher this morning, Reverend Kevin Smith. Uh, Reverend, why don't you come up here? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get you up here while, while everybody sees who I'm talking about. <laughs> Reverend Kevin Smith is uh, an ordained teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. Kevin is the pastor at New City Fellowship in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, you've been there, what, four years? Seven, six years? Seven years now? Oh, wow. Native of West Philly and a graduate of Chesapeake Theological uh, Seminary. So let's give uh, applause to, to our brother Kevin. Thank you. You can see it. And friends... <laughs> Uh, friends, now we're gonna, we're gonna prepare for the reading and the preaching of the word of our God. Let us pray for a receptive heart in the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The New Testament reading is taken from the Epistle of James, chapter 1, verse 27, to chapter 2, verse 7. The Word of the Lord. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is the gospel of the Lord. It's truly a privilege to be with you this morning to worship the great God and King of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be with you, dear pastor, who he and I, he didn't mention this, but he and I have a common history. Uh, Dear brother, a pastor, a well-known church planter in the D.C. area who's retired now, but his name is Ron Bossom, and he's the one who baptized Greg and Pastor Greg, and I later was a pastoral intern with him. So we have that connection, and I believe there's an Eric Kenyon here somewhere. I don't know if you here this morning. There you are, the Kenyons, and, and Eric was a deacon at the church. Obviously, his dear wife was there, and, and now he's an elder here. So we have some connection. So, but more than that, our connection is through Jesus Christ. You see, that makes us family, eternal family. The good thing about that is we're going to be together forever. From this moment on into eternity, you and I, and many like us, all around the world, all through the ages, will be joined together in new heavens and new earth, praising and living lives for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So family, I greet you in the name of Jesus. I greet you in the name of your brothers and sisters at New City Fellowship. And I bring you greetings from the LDR conference as well. I'd like to turn your attention to the Word of God. And, and James chapter 2 has already been read in your hearing and we've prayed. So allow me now to just dive into what we're going to talk about. And this is, this is LDR weekend. Um, and I don't know if you know what that's about. It's Leadership Development Resource Weekend. In particular, it was designed to introduce African Americans and then other minorities to the PCA, to, to Reform Theology and the PCA. Covenant Seminary has been a site for this and helping us with this as well. We've had it in Chattanooga and Jackson, Mississippi, and of course, St. Louis. It's been here for the last, oh, maybe, I mean, several, over the last six years or so, it's been here at least four of those times. So that's what we've been doing this weekend, introducing people, especially minorities, especially African Americans, to Reformation teaching and to the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, I don't know, I, I, I do know you know this. During the Civil Rights Movement, there were th uh, there were things that took place, settings or situations that took place called sit-ins. You remember sit-ins, right? They were a nonviolent protest to desegregate public spaces. But there was also something else that took place that didn't get the press of the sit-ins. These were called kneel-ins. Kneel as in kneeling before the Lord. In the book, The Last Segregated Hour, which I do commend to you, kneelings are described as this, attempts by blacks or integrated groups to occupy segregated ecclesiastical space. In other words, African Americans and others join with them, whites and others join with them to kneel in front of churches that historically we're keeping African-Americans out of the worship experience there. They challenge this ungodly practice of discrimination that will be shown, sadly, by some whites in this country who call themselves Christians. Now, the Neolins went across several denominations. Um, Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis who is, that is now pastored by a friend of mine, was especially prominent. In the book, they chronicle this statement. In 1964, which was, was, was the big year for the Neolins, also the year of my birth, the Presbyterian Outlook magazine wrote this article briefly. They talked about how students of the NAACP were visiting Memphis churches. And the article said that they were welcome, pretty friendly, pretty, it was, it was pretty okay. There was no problem, except when they got to Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. When they got to that church, they were barred from entering the congregation by a line of church officers standing on the front steps like this. The book has the picture on this cover. Standing like this, behind them were uniformed police officers with guns. And on the front, you see this, on the steps, you see the, the, kneel, the, the kneelers praying in front of that spectacle. It's heartbreaking. 
to know that the church that claimed to believe the Bible, that claimed to love the Lord Jesus Christ, would keep people out simply because of the ethnicity. And even today, though we don't keep people out because of their ethnicity or class, yet, brothers and sisters, sometimes we make certain people feel unwelcome by how we do things in the church. To be honest, not just in church, but in most areas of life, we do these things in workplaces, in schools, socially, politically, child-rearing, etc. We are all tempted to play favorites. We all, we all have our favorites. And we're all tempted because we're all flawed. We're all prone to sin. Lord, I feel it. We're all capable of playing favorites. James is a wonderful book. I'm preaching through James for our congregation. And it's a wonderful book. And Luther didn't like James. Martin Luther didn't like James. Y'all know this. I see that already. He thought James was a right strawy epistle. Because Luther did not see the gospel in James. Because Luther didn't see it. Doesn't mean it wasn't there. I love Martin Luther, don't get me wrong. But he wasn't perfect. James, I'm going to, chapter 2 builds on what happens in chapter 1. And let me just give you a few verses, all right? Chapter 1, verse 18. The Bible says, of his own will, that's of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. So James is building on the idea that you and I have been born again. We've been made alive. How? By the word of truth. He's writing to people who he believes have been made alive by the word of truth. Amen? You can say amen. It's okay. Verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness, and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So, okay, we've been saved by the word. Now, James says, go on receiving this word, which will cause you to put away sin in your life. Not perfectly, amen, but there should be something happening. There should be something happening. Then he tells us in verse 22, to be doers of that implanted word to be doers of that word that has saved you, that word that has made you alive in Christ. This is the good news. You're not the same person you were. The word has made you alive by the power of the Spirit. The gospel is the power of God, right, for salvation. And when it comes into our lives, now we become, watch, he says, doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So James is building on this. He's Luther missed this. I don't know how he missed it, but he missed it. James is building on this, wanting us to understand that he's writing to people who have been impacted by the truth of the gospel, and now he's telling us how to live it out, how to put the gospel to work, how to respond to the grace of God in our lives. So verse 27, which was read, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is showing us then 
as he comes to a conclusion in chapter two, moving us in chapter one, I mean, chapter two, chapter one, moving us to chapter two, he shows us that when the word takes hold of you, this means personal holiness and a biblical social justice that takes place in our hearts as we relate to our neighbors. James calls these two together, personal holiness, biblical social justice, and care for those around us, especially those who have less. He calls it pure religion. And so in chapter 2, flowing into chapter 2, he begins to highlight what he means in particular by this, what I'm calling, biblical social justice. What does he mean by this? And and it's so important because it concerns the reality of our faith in our Lord Jesus. He says, if your faith is real, this is what it should look like. Chapter 2. Show no, my brothers, he's, he's talking, he's pastor. He's a pastor. My brothers and sisters, that means you too. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is the big idea. Chapter 2, verse 1 gives us the general principle that James wants us to grasp. Here it is, point one. Favoritism is a denial of true Christian faith. The word is partiality in the ESV version. This is not the idea of preferring one football team or one baseball team over another. That's not what he's talking about. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not talking about after careful thought, preferring one candidate over another. That's not what he's talking about. Partiality speaks of the unfair practice of treating some people better than others. Plain and simple. Treating some people better than others. It seems the church or churches to which James wrote was dealing with this issue. Literally, literally, the word partiality means to receive the face in the Greek language. To receive the face. Thus, James is saying that we make judgments about people based upon how they look. Isn't it striking that so often we think we know all we need to know about a person based upon how they look? This happens in spite of the fact that we teach our children, don't judge a book by its cover. And yet... We do it all the time. Years ago, we said blondes have more fun. Then we said blondes are stupid. Just because she's blonde. (laughs) Studies have shown, watch this, that we assume a person's worth, intelligence, and trustworthiness by how they look. He's got beady eyes. They're too close together. Can't trust him. Psychology Today did some studies on this. And they found out that we vote for candidates based upon whether they look competent. What does that mean, to look competent? 
After it goes on, it says, we need to be a bit more cynical. <laughs> At the root of favoritism or discrimination, I believe, is the ungodly belief that certain people or types of people are inherently better than others. We tend to fall into that category more often than we care to admit. Some are out and clear about that. But others, but most of us would never want to say that in public. But yet the temptation still remains. Take the racism that led the churches in like, like first, second Presbyterian church in Memphis to exclude African Americans. That was based upon a huge false assumption that black people were actually inherently inferior to white people. We call it white supremacy. That's still in our country, sadly, but that's based upon a false assumption, again, to the face. Look at the face. We are better than you. I am better than you. Black people were discriminated against. Of course, you think of slavery and Jim Crow, which led to the church's views, were all are based upon that same assumption that somehow blacks were inferior. There was a theological conviction called the curse of Ham that was developed by theologians to actually conclude that blacks should always be enslaved. However, when you look at the scriptures, it was isogesis, we call it. It was a false interpretation of scripture because the curse that they're talking about was not, was not upon Ham, but upon Canaan. And we know what happened to the Canaanites, don't you? But again, because of this false belief, the church developed a system, a rationale from the Bible, misquoted, but from the Bible to justify this discrimination. You see, James is telling us that these kinds of judgments are in sharp denial to what he says, to hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Partiality in all of its forms are a denial of the faith. It is a matter of faith. That is what it means to be someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus does not teach such things. It is foreign to him and what he stands for. That's what James is telling us. Jesus is the Lord of glory, he says. He is the sovereign Lord over all things, all people, all kingdoms. He has decided to call a people to himself. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, a people from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues around this throne. That's what Jesus is doing, gathering people. He's gathering the Imago Dei, the image of God in all people groups, from all nations, all tongues, all places. He's gathering them to himself and around his throne. He will have representatives from everyone. No one will be left out because Jesus is the Lord of all of humanity. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ delivers me from partiality. 
because it says, I don't have to compete with you for my identity. I don't have to be superior to anyone. I am accepted and beloved for who I am in Jesus. I Listen, we, we have to begin to question why we don't believe that. We have to begin to ask ourselves, where does our identity come from as the people of God? Is it only because of my ethnicity? Is it only because of my family of origin and connections? Or as a child of God, does my identity come from Christ and, and mostly Christ alone? The other things are important. That's why God gave you ethnicity. But in Christ, our identity, our sense of worth, our sense of acceptance, our sense of true love and hope for this life and the next must be found in him. Or we find ourselves very easily comparing ourselves with each other. And I got to tell you the truth. When I compare me to you, what's your name, brother? I forgot. Hey, when I compare myself to you, I always win. I, I, I'm not going to say I'm worse than you. I mean, come on. When we compare, Paul said, when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we're not wise. Where does your identity come from? We have to be, even begin to question ourselves as we gather together to worship in communities that are diverse in their makeup. Why are our churches gathered around race? ethnicity, or class. We have to ask the questions. Are we somehow being partial? Well, R. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on this wonderful verse, he tells a tells story. First of all, he says that something that's very striking. He said, Christian bodies all tend to succeed, calcify, and then become elitists. What a thought. We, we, we begin as a church and we're growing, we're excited and we pop, think people are getting saved and they're coming and then we plateau. There's a calcific, there's a calcification that takes place and churches plateau and people aren't getting saved very often and they're, they're just keeping the status quo going, keeping the lights on, loving each other, but no one else is really allowed. And, and then he says, then we become elitist. Is that true? I don't know. But what a thought. He tells the story of a, a black, I believe a black woman who wanted to join this particularly white church. And he, and, and she, he, she comes to the pastor and says, hey, I want to join the church. And the pastor says, really? Okay. Uh, why don't you, why don't you think about that for me? Just think about it. She was, she's, from, she's from the other side of the tracks. Think about that for a little bit and get back to me. So she goes home. He says, okay, I'll think about it some more. She goes home for a week, comes back and says, okay, I thought about it. I, I still want to join the church. He says, okay, really? Okay. He says, well, why don't you, um, go home and read the Bible for a week? Let God's word speak to you. Make sure it's clear. Make sure you're hearing from God. Go home and read the Bible for a week. Then come back and we'll talk. So she goes home and reads the Bible for a week. She's a little perturbed by this, but she says, okay, fine. She goes home, reads the Bible, comes back and says, pastor, 
I still, I want to join. I want to join. I think, I think God's word is encouraging me to join. She says, okay. He says, okay, really? Okay, why don't you go home and pray every day for a week? Let's make sure you understood the word correctly. Let the spirit of God speak to you. Get back to me. And we come. So at this point, she's fed up. She goes home and she says, forget that church. I'm not joining. So six months later, the pastor runs into her in the supermarket. And the pastor says, hey, so what you going to do? <laughs> she says to him, you know, I did what you said about going home and praying. And I prayed for a week about it. And the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, he said, don't worry about trying to get into that church. I've been trying for 20 years and still haven't done it. Partiality can hide <laughs> And look, sometimes look spiritual, but it's still partiality. Notice next he says, showing favoritism for the wealthy is a denial of true Christian faith. For I, for verse two, for the man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, Yes, sir. So glad to have you. Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? This idea, again, comes from the old covenant where partiality of every kind is condemned. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15 says, you shall, do, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. This example shows that James chooses to highlight partiality against the poor in particular. Now again, the, James is one of the earliest epistles written, and this is the early church, and it's probably a largely a Jewish uh, congregation he's writing to. These are new believers in Christ. They're blessed. They're, as Jews, they're basing their worship probably on the synagogue system, and in that system, sometimes the rich were giving certain benefits above the poor. It happens. It may happen today. His language suggests that this was not just a story, but a real situation in the church. Now you have to ask, well, well, there are questions to ask about the setting. Are both of these men believers, the rich man, the poor man? Are they, are they visitors? Uh, uh, we don't know all the details about this. James doesn't give us all to us. But this could be a worship service or actually maybe a church judicial setting well, the elders are being called upon to make some type of judgment. So you see what happens. Person of wealth comes in wearing a nice suit, tie, cufflinks, looking good, smelling good. And he is said, and 
Maybe he's an official in the community. We had the mayor visit our church some time ago, and maybe he's an official in the church. And, you know, he's, he's the ushers bring him in. You know, they meet him at the door. Yes, sir. Good to see you. Welcome, sir. And they usher him down front somewhere, give him a good seat, make people move out the way, you know, sit him there. And so he's sitting there. He's all, he's great. But then someone else comes in. Basically, this person is dressed like a homeless person. He's, that's the description he's given of this guy. He looks like a homeless person. He's a, he's probably a little smelly. And the ushers, you know, they're, they're doing their job too. They take this, they, they grab this guy and, and they say, well, we can't sit him with our people, see, because he's not one of us. He's not like us and we don't want to offend, right? We don't want people to be offended by his smell and his dress. So therefore, put him in a corner or in that culture, in the, in the biblical culture, sit down here at my feet. It, it doesn't matter how the person was dressed. The issue is not how they're dressed. People dress up for church in America today. We dress down for church. We, we do it all. And we somehow think that by dressing down, somehow that will make people want to come. A little superficial, but okay. The issue is not how, how you dress, but the issue is how church people treat you based upon how you dress. How are you treated? How do we greet people? At New City Fellowship, we have people sometimes wandering in who are talking to themselves. Yeah. I used to work in psychiatry so as a therapist, so I, 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 I know when someone is responding to internal stimuli. And you see a guy walking around. Eli, the, one guy's I call him the prophet. He walks around. He's talking to himself. And, and, and you, you get to what? Now, again, ladies, this guy could be dangerous. We understand that. Possibly. Not necessarily, by the way. Everyone who's, who's having hallucinations isn't dangerous. But I understand. But brothers, maybe we need to go talk to the guy. But what happens is, is he ushered, is he given the left for the fellowship? Ushered out the door, well, he's not one of us. Well, maybe, again, he's, he's not a person of means. And you can tell that. Is he welcome? Is she welcome? The well-dressed person is viewed as someone as, as someone as high social economic standing. Let's stay on his good side because he might be a good giver to the ministry. And if he gets saved, wow, God can really use him. The poor man has no power, so he's not given good treatment. He can't further the ministry. As a matter of fact, the poor man will be a drain on the ministry because he's going to need some diaconal support. This kind of behavior is making judgments about people in an ungodly manner and making ourselves a judge over someone's heart purely because of the way they look, the way they're dressed, even the way, maybe even the color of their skin. Showing favoritism to the haves over the have-nots to be honest with you, James is saying is evil. In the book, The New Jim Crow, the author demonstrates how the courts in our country give more jail time to African Americans and Hispanics, especially the poor, than they do to whites who commit the same crimes. Now, 
If you're a criminal, you're a criminal. But justice demands equal treatment. But not in America. This is evil, but even more so when such discrimination happens among the people of God. None of us are immune. I'm not immune. To deny that is to deny total depravity. To deny the fact that we're all tainted by sin. I was privileged to to chair the Racial Reconciliation Study Committee for our General Assembly for two years. We just did our report, turned it in this past General Assembly. It was a great privilege. And what we found out is the PCA is not impure when it comes to racism. We're not impure. We're culpable. We all struggle. We all look at one another and we want to make judgments based upon how people look. But the gospel, the gospel is the word of God implanted in our souls that that can deliver us from that. The gospel makes me look at you, my white brothers and sisters, and say to you, you're my family. I've been asked, I've been in PCA almost 30 years, my wife and I, 28 years this year, and I keep being asked by pastors, why are you still here? White pastors, Kevin, how, how have you put up? I get asked this constantly, general assemblies, presbyteries, how have you taken it so long? And I look at them and I tell them this, You're my family. I don't leave the family because some of us act silly. I hope you won't leave because I act a fool sometimes. No. We're family in Jesus. And I'm committed to you and you're committed. And the word of God that works on me (laughs) is working on you too. James is telling us that partiality is against the gospel. Partiality of whatever kind, whether it's ethnic or social economic, he's saying that partiality denies the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's more to be said here, but I'm not going to say it. I'll let your pastor follow up. Pastor Greg can continue in the rest of the chapter. But I want to ask you a question, memorial prayers, my family, my brothers and sisters, my mothers and, and, and fathers. Is there anything in this church that is hindering you from reaching out to a broader community around you that maybe doesn't look like you? It, 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 are there things? I'm asking. I don't know. You have to do the work. Are there things in your worship, in your how you your politics? When I pastored in Miami, I never forget one of my elders was a died in the wool Republican. Frankly, I don't care who you vote for, just vote your conscience according to the Word of God. That's all I care about. We're all going to vote differently. Understand that. But he was a died in the wool Republican. He ran people out of our church because he was such a Republican. I had to go chase down people because they were Democrats. Is this the Republican church for this community or the Democrat church for this community? Is that what you're known for? 
I guarantee you, if you are, you're pushing people away unnecessarily. Are there things in this church about you as the people of God where you are being partial unnecessarily and is keeping you from being effective or more effective in reaching people for the glory of Jesus? You have to answer that question. I have to answer it every day in my congregation. I got to answer that question too. But here's the ticket. Jesus looked at each one of us. And he is the only one who is truly better than all of us. He is the one who is truly greater. He is the one who is truly superior. And yet he looked at you who are truly inferior. And he said, I will die for you. He said, I, I will not turn my back on you because of who, how you look and even what you have done. I will not turn my back. I will give myself for you and I will die and rise again that you might be mine. Hallelujah. The people of Jesus have got to allow the life of Jesus to flow through us. He who touched sinners, he who was called the friend of sinners, he who loved Samaritans and Jews and Gentiles, he is our Savior. And through us, brothers and sisters, He wants to take a non-partial gospel to our communities, to our cities, to our nations, and to our world for the glory of Jesus. Amen? God bless you.